I am always looking for that nuance, that moment of truth, and you can't really do that fast. Paul Thomas Anderson Hello and welcome to The Mirror. I'm Justin Reed, and as always I'm going to be taking you through a little bit of a trip through my mindscape, uh, my recent and maybe not so recent thought processes and uh, you know, creative um, things that I've been thinking about and, and sort of reflecting on. And uh, this week I wanted to sort of create a bit of a study Uh, I guess like a very, that's probably a very loose term, but what I'm, I guess what I'm calling a study in contemporary naturalism and particularly in, um, particularly in cinema and uh, even more particularly the films of Paul Thomas Anderson and a little, uh, we'll touch a little bit more on um, the work of Lars von Trier and Michael Haneker as well, who I've, I guess, sort of at different points spoken about or alluded to in this project um, without sort of giving them the due that they maybe deserve because their work has been incredibly influential to me. And it's, it, I, I think it, both of them really deserve a, like a, a strong deep dive into sort of the themes and, and the processes and, and, and thoughts around their work. And I, I have a feeling I will definitely get to that, especially Lars von Trier's work. And I, and I was thinking about doing something about him to do with naturalism, but um, I guess he'll just be sort of more of a, a feature player in this in this study as opposed to yeah the filmmaker Paul Thomas Anderson who I guess his work will take center stage and what I wanted to talk about today I'm trying something a little different today um I usually sit down all the time <laughs> way too much when I'm working or you know writing or watching films or whatever I'm doing but I just really felt the need to stand up today so Obviously, you will not be able to see it, but I'll describe my setup. I, I've taken my um, extension microphone, like boom arm. I've attached it to some bookcase that is at a perfect height. And I'm standing at sort of like the, the island in my uh, kitchen. So I'm able to stand up and record and, and be hands-free while also able to feel like I'm not just sitting down and, um, you know, making my back muscles even weaker than they already are. But... Um, I, I do wonder about this because I, I always wonder about how little shifts in approach or process or how you change your sort of like daily rituals might like change your work process as well. And, you know, I'm recording in a slightly different room than usual. So I'm going to be sort of like subconsciously reacting to that in a different way. I'm standing up. So I'm going to be subconsciously reacting to that in a different way as well. But um I guess this is a little bit of an attempt by me to just just to change things up to just see if maybe there's a more like optimal way to do things and because honestly like sitting down is just not ideal and sitting down too much is the reason why as I've outlined in previous episodes like I have neck and back issues at the age of 26 and I am you know and I and I struggle with um injuries that I shouldn't have but that many people have because of our increasingly sedentary lifestyles so yeah I think it's very important that you like change things up and I guess like the reason why I really wanted to create this episode today kind of leads off that because the last three or four days when I've been waking up in the morning I've been like really conscious to not have my phone next to me on the bed when I go to sleep at night which is something I've just been doing just on autopilot for the last five six maybe more years and keeping it on my nightstand where it's away from me. And then when I wake up in the morning, just to not reach for it instantly, not look at it and actually just, you know, go out and have my morning coffee and just sort of sit down on on, on my sofa or wherever I feel like sitting. And not to say that I'm like explicitly meditating because it's more just like me just trying to like sort of wake up and ease myself into it. But it has really helped me a lot. And it's such a simple thing you would think but just like having that like clarity of thought in the morning or or, or not feeling like overly stimulated or like even like the anxiety that I feel when I look at my phone in the morning and see that there's so many things on there and like in some way you're kind of like thinking okay I'm already behind for the day or 
you know, all these people are harassing me. I just woke up like, what the hell? But it's like, it's us sort of letting that into our life because, because that's what we do. And I don't know how many people, I don't know how many people have that same experience or that same feeling, but like, I've found it really worthwhile to like be really active in that the last few days. But last night I found it hard to go to sleep because I was like incredibly inspired. And then when I woke up this morning, I felt this like urgency to like go on my phone or to, to go on YouTube or something like that, just to kind of have some kind of like ingesting of, of content. And so I I fought that urge and I didn't look at my phone for sort of, oh, it was probably two hours before I even looked at it, but I, I did sort of like randomly look at some YouTube videos on, on the TV after I did my, you know, sort of morning relaxing. And during that relaxation period, I was like trying to think about like, okay, why have I got this sudden urgency? Like the last few days I've been very comfortable. I've been very comfortable with not, you know, needing my phone straight away or, or feeling like I should give into that, um, urge that I should, you know, reach for it straight away but this morning I just couldn't shake it and I was trying to figure out why. And what I came to like in my sort of thought process, just sitting there drinking my coffee was that because I watched this film last night and the film is The Master by Paul Thomas Anderson. So there's our link for the episode, The Master by Paul Thomas Anderson from 2012. And it was just like, so it just like affected me so much. Like it was just such a beautiful film in in as like a work of art but like also like the construction of it was just so impressive and so beautiful that it just had my mind racing and I couldn't help but instantly research last night about like the cinematography and you know sort of like the idea process behind um, how Paul Thomas Anderson constructs his films and that stayed with me overnight I I did all that research last night, went to bed, woke up this morning and was just itching to continue to do it. So I guess that feeling within me was some kind of urgency, uh, some kind of feeling of like wanting to learn more and ingest um, more about that creative process of this film and, and this filmmaker's work. But rather than, I guess, spending the day just like watching other people's opinions about the work, I thought I should channel it into actually creating something about it and actually speaking about my own ideas about it. So yeah, so that's kind of like a loose introduction about how I arrived at this. And maybe you can even hear the urgency in my voice, or maybe I'm just uh, exhausted because standing up for eight minutes is uh, more exhausting than sitting down for eight minutes. But hey, at least my you know, my blood is flowing, my, my energy is kind of there. So we can, we can dive off from that point. But yeah, first and foremost, um, so I've called this a study in contemporary naturalism and as it pertains, you know, to cinema. But I guess if you're not aware, like what naturalism is, the term naturalism sort of originates from painting and I won't be able to put a specific time frame on this, but more like classical paintings where, before, you know, any of these movements that we're aware of, like expressionism, impressionism, leading into modernism and everything that came with that postmodernism, we had classical painting. And I guess like the sort of, for a very long time, the modus operandi of artists and the art world were to paint things exactly as they saw them. So that's why there is a lot of classical art that features a lot of natural light and that shows scenes of daily life. And for the most part, you know, this was a lot of scenes of aristocracy and people who could afford to pay an artist a lot of money to create a very um, extravagant work of art detailing them or a dinner party or something that was happening in their life. While that movement, I guess, is called like the classical art movement, the style is naturalism. So it's working with what is there. It's not augmenting things or looking at things through an abstraction, it's looking at the scene, looking at the lighting there and then capturing that in the painting. And I think it's, it's a really beautiful style because, well, when I guess artists in that period were learning how to create that kind of art, they were really focusing on like, how can, how can we make, how can we take these pigments and translate them into something that actually looks like real life? And So we have this amazing sort of history of landscapes and portraiture and and all kinds of different scenes 
of like real life captured before we ever had any type of photography or, you know, video cameras or anything like that, like way, way, way before it. So I feel like it's such a, a beautiful thing. And, and don't get me wrong. Like I love more abstract forms of art too. I love, uh, you know, a lot more expressionist art, impressionist art. Uh, I talk all the time about, um, David Lynch's work and his art is incredibly abstract and very often his films don't really resonate with any kind of naturalism and they're sort of blending, you know, sort of a stylized, almost like Hollywood style or, or even elements of naturalism with surrealism. And I think that's like, you know, everything excites me. All of those different things I think are incredibly important styles of art. And I don't think one is better than the other. But as I was watching this film last night, The Master, it really struck me that like, I've watched three films by Paul Thomas Anderson in the last sort of, I would say like nine, 10 months or so. I watched in sequence from 2002, Punch Drunk Love starring Adam Sandler. I think 2007's There Will Be Blood starring Daniel Day-Lewis. And then last night, The Master starring Joaquin Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman and Amy Adams. And Punch Drunk Love is a little bit more... I guess you could say a little bit more surreal, but it, it does a lot with naturalism. Like it, it is quite a naturalistic movie and the way that Paul Thomas Anderson works with specifically light with his cinematographers and production design. I, I don't want to say like, it's hard to say like things are quote unquote real because what I'm, I'm not talking about documentary here. I guess I'm talking about capturing a natural scene in the most sort of beautiful way possible. And that might sound like, okay, that's not natural at all because you're trying to augment it, but it's rather using the best available tools that you have and, you know, creating the scene in the perfect way, but ultimately relying a lot on natural light, relying a lot on like having a single perspective in a scene and then not trying to um, confuse that or or kind of keep the audience comfortable by changing the lighting every single time that you shoot a new shot in a scene. So I guess what am I talking about there? So a good example would be watching sort of TV dramas or watching, again, like to use like the superhero movies or like any sort of, you know, um, classical Hollywood films or, you know, more contemporary Hollywood films they focus a lot on trying to make sure that lighting is consistent throughout a lot of the film. So if you're in a room and light is hitting a character from one certain angle, when they cut to another angle, say if they were shooting two people talking and one character is lit from a light source that seems like it's coming from a natural place and then they cut to the other character who you would think, okay, if one character is completely lit, the other person must be in shadow, but you cut back to that person and that person is lit as well because they are focusing on wanting to show off their talent and show off, um, and by talent, I mean actors and, and, and show off exactly what is happening in the scene. They don't want to leave any sort of like differences of interpretation or anything like that. To contrast that with Paul Thomas Anderson's work, there is a scene in the master where, um, Joaquin Phoenix's character, Freddie, is this sort of like this montage of him working a bunch of, I guess, like different jobs trying to like find um, his place in the world after returning from World War II as a veteran. And the scene is shot at nighttime and there's sort of like a, a scene where they lay somebody on the bed and then a sort of a fight erupts and the bed has lights on it, but around the bed it is quite dark. And when Freddy moves out of the light, he is completely encased in darkness and there are multiple figures in darkness. And I, I almost think like in any other, in almost any other work of like Hollywood cinema, they would make sure that you could see exactly what is happening in the darkness. But Paul Thomas Anderson is more interested in the, I guess, like evoking a natural mood of the scene. And again, not to say that he's creating a documentary but what he is creating is like if you're if you're in a in a room that has a small light source and then you move out of that light source into the dark you're not still going to be lit 
and he shoots that scene in sort of one single take and it that I guess like that was like the first scene it's early in the film where I was just like damn he is just so in control of what he is doing here and so aware of not only the production design but how the the cinematography and the lighting actually plays into you know creating this more naturalist style of film and I was just incredibly impressed by it because right after that scene he sort of runs through a dark hallway and you can't really again you can't really see his character's face during the like the dark hallway and there's some people sort of running after him and then he runs out of a door into what you didn't realize is the pre-dawn light across like a field and the field is sort of lit in this pre-dawn light and that's again like that's so amazing to me is that he wasn't stopping to like try and create multiple different scenes to get the lighting like perfectly lit so you could see everything he shot things in sort of singular takes and had certain parts of the shot lit and certain parts of the shot in darkness like it would happen in real life and like I said it was just such a a beautiful thing to see and at first I was kind of like oh why did he do this and then as the film went on and more and more of these sort of occurrences happened I was like okay he's very aware of what he's doing he, he and his cinematographer and production designer and everyone else involved in the film have created this very intentional look that feels like we are in a real environment, that these characters are actually interacting in a world that feels real. And, and I guess, like I said, this is not, this is not one-to-one realism. I, I said in a recent episode that, you know, often sometimes we focus too much on realism And that can sort of be the downfall of certain works of art because they could be so magical or they could be so interesting by going in a different direction that's more abstract or more surreal, but they don't. They decide to just play it safe. They make sure that everyone is lit properly, that everyone can see things at all times. And because of that, you never sort of get to interpret anything of your own. Like I've sat here talking probably for five minutes plus just on this one sort of 60 to 90 second scene in a, in a two and a half hour movie. Like that's how much it impacted me. If that film was lit in a completely sort of like Hollywood sort of, you know, refined with nice contrast and, and the light and shadows doing beautiful things because there are master craftsmen working on it, but ultimately focusing on, you know, making sure that everyone was in focus at all times or that, everyone was lit in exactly the same way, it just wouldn't have the same impact. And this, this um, approach of, of cinematography runs throughout the whole film, but it's not just the cinematography as well. It's, it's the way that um, he actually has edited the film, the way that he lets longer scenes play out, the way that rather than deciding to shoot a scene of someone delivering a speech in front of the crowd by showing a little bit of the speech and then cutting to a few different people um, looking at it as like a reaction shot, sort of like the reaction shots telling you how to feel about the speech. He just does one long slow shot where he just lets the person give their speech for 30 seconds or a minute or however long it is. And you hear people clapping and then you move on to the next thing. It's almost like I don't know. It's almost like he's creating this very specific perspective within his film. And it does change a lot throughout the film because the story, I guess, starts with Freddie and follows his, you know, his journey. But it also it also focuses in on other characters and allows you to sort of live in their perspective for a while to get a sense of what they are like. And because of that, it creates this really subjective idea of the world which is more in line with what the real world actually is and again like this is not him one-to-one creating realism this is him very intentionally stylistically creating a very natural way of the world for his almost larger than life characters to exist in and again like I'm, I'm sitting here like talking about this at length and this is this is why I was so energized when I woke up this morning because this film has just sort of permeated through my my brain overnight and I've just been thinking about it so much and I think if you're someone who is interested in like if you're someone who is a filmmaker particularly or but this can apply to other forms of artwork as well visual art for the most part um, I would highly recommend watching his films and sort of giving yourself over to them trying not to 
over intellectualize them uh, too much because that is something I definitely struggle with sometimes. And I mean, the beauty of watching things that are not sort of like purely just entertaining from start to finish is that it does give you a lot of room to breathe and a lot of room to sort of reflect and think about how you're feeling. But this was a, a movie that, you know, in many parts is just sort of a a, a drama between a handful of people. It's not like there's, you know, intense, crazy action sequences or anything like that, but it kept me in such a state of, I guess, like wonder and reflection, but also like I was absolutely in it with them. I feel like, you know, these choices of the cinematography and choices of editing where rather than, you know, constantly doing the old shot reverse shot between a conversation often the camera will just stay on one person for a long time while they are having a conversation with someone. And you really feel at that point like you are living in their mind, like you are getting a sense of who this character is. Every time a, a filmmaker cuts, every time a filmmaker makes an edit, they are making a, a choice to basically give the audience new information. Even if it's cutting back and forth between a conversation they are giving the audience new information every time. So every time it cuts, like your mind has to sort of reassess what it's looking at and rethink about it. But when you're staring at some one person in a conversation for two to three minutes at a time, you actually really get a long time to understand what's going on. You can study their face, you can study their performance, but more than that, you feel like you are, you are in their headspace. And that is such a an interesting thing that I don't see very often in many contemporary filmmakers, but I guess that's the connection between Michael Haneke and Lars von Trier is that they are very adept as well as Paul Thomas Anderson at giving you that, at giving you like a really strong sense of like subjectivity where you are making your own conclusions about what is happening. The editing is not doing it for you. They are often leaving things out of the picture, you know, or they are not not in a provocative way, but they are bucking the trends of what, you know, sort of commercial cinema or um, I guess the sort of like orthodox approach, the quote unquote no film school approach, I'll call it, um, tells you to do. And if you spend a lot of time on, on YouTube and reading blogs like No Film School, you will ultimately sort of come away with a certain singular mindset, I think, with how to create films. And I, and I think this can be quite, um, quite dangerous, um, not dangerous in a physically threatening way, but just dangerous for um, how you approach your art because you start to sort of fill in, uh, you start to sort of like line up in a certain orthodoxy and it means that your work is only ever going to exist within this sort of like one homogenous Hollywood contemporary sort of style and you will only ever write things in a certain way and if that doesn't work for you you will have a lot of um you'll have a lot of um difficulty I think like adapting to it and that's that's what I've realized from watching you know the films of, of these filmmakers as well as filmmakers like Andre Tarkovsky and David Lynch is that you absolutely do not have to do it that way. You absolutely do not have to make sure that if you're making a 90 minute film, that your screenplay needs to be 90 pages long, one page per minute. I was reading um, the other day as well that David Lynch and Mark Frost's um, script for Twin Peaks The Return, which is an 18 episode sort of like extended film that they call it but cut into one hour episodes and was aired on tv like that um they wrote it as one long 500 page script and mark frost has become a, a novelist since like the the first twin peaks story uh since the first twin peaks um series aired in the early 90s and so the way they approached it was to basically write it as like a novel and then to allow like they wrote it as a very sort of concise 500 page novel and then when it came to the actual filmmaking they left a lot of room for visuals to to work and I think I read that the part eight which it, if you've seen it um you'll be familiar with part eight and sort of how unique it is even within the Twin Peaks universe um and, and the story that they're telling but if you haven't seen it you should go and watch again at at my um and my, my advice is to go and watch Twin Peaks from the start 
uh, the first two seasons, watch Firewalk with me and then watch The Return and then come and talk to me because I think we'll be able to talk about it for hours. But they wrote a 15-page script, I think. So that is an hour-long episode or an hour-long part of their film and it's only 15 pages long. So what happens in the other 45 minutes? So basically what they wrote was a visual description with some certain parts of dialogue and then when it came to actually creating and filming the thing they just completely had a ball with it they just went to town and just they basically just had an almost blank canvas to play with even though of course yes they had a plan for it and that's what the script is for is to give you a an outline and a plan but that was so like revolutionary to me to hear that to to hear that like okay you can make a one hour film essentially with a 15 page script because you don't need to spend a whole page describing a visual if you know what the visual is going to be like and you just want to play around and experiment until that visual takes the shape that it needs to be. And it doesn't need to be one minute long. It can be five minutes long. It can be 10 minutes long. And again, if you have seen it, you know what I'm talking about with part eight, that that is a perfect example of that in like a contemporary work of film. If you haven't seen it, you will get there. <laughs> so that's a, a little bit sort of um, branching off from the, the topic of naturalism. But like, I just wanted to to speak a little bit more about the master and then maybe touch on a little bit of a few other things as well. But these are some of the notes that I took and I'll, and I'll probably just draw from them here and, and you'll get a sense of like what I was feeling like right after I watched it and, and my interpretation of it to give you a sense of like, this is this is how I see a really great example of contemporary naturalism and what, what are the parts that make up that work and what are the parts that make up an, a, a great example of that style. So I wrote, I just watched The Master and it is perfection. The way that Paul Thomas Anderson frames things, the closeness without fetishizing of bokeh, the natural lighting, those wide shots that seem to come just at the right time and that push in ever so subtly that are almost like, I guess, like wide format uh, photographs that, that you, can, you can slowly take in every element of that frame rather than, it just being, rather than it just being a casual establishing shot. Oh, here's a shot of the city of Philadelphia. It's like a very intentionally constructed yet naturalistic yeah, like a, almost like a documentary photograph in that way. And importantly, like I think another important thing about naturalism is that there's a lot of ambiguity to it. The, the subtle presentation of characters that show us all sides of them to see a full human being and make our own judgments again without fetishizing them or, you know, overly focusing on certain aspects of them to make them quote unquote a good guy or quote unquote a bad guy. I think that what he does so well in his films is he allows you to feel a broad spectrum or not he allows you, but he creates his films in such a way that you do feel such a broad spectrum of emotion that you can laugh at a character and love them and want the best for them while also acknowledging that they are horrible and they do horrible things. And you hold these contradictions within yourself because that is a that is a trait that most human beings have they have good and bad within them and you know we can accept them for that regardless and we can want better for them and we can also you know be upset when they they do things that maybe we don't agree with or maybe that are not so good and and that's another key part of naturalism i think as well is that like not only are you sort of bringing your own experiences to it that that sense of subjectivity but that people can be many things to many people and and something that definitely contemporary hollywood cinema i think is sort of shoving down our throats all the time is like this idea of good and bad people and yes like there has been a resurgence in the last 20 30 years and maybe we can look at some of martin scorsese's work for that um or, or maybe we can yeah look at these sort of like anti-hero style of like comic book movies but there is this idea of like the flawed anti-hero but you're still rooting for them you know the the tony soprano the walter white the um the the watchmen film and i guess like what's funny about all of that is like that says so much about the culture and the society that 
we live in is that people idolize and fetishize these type of characters to the point of like, you know, people wearing Tony Soprano shirts around or, um, uh, you know, everyone wants to be like Walter White because he's so cool. But it's like the point of these films is to show you or or these, these works of art is to show you that these are pretty like bad people. And like, yeah, there's some like morally, there's some gray areas there because, you know, there are things that you can appreciate them for and love about them. And like, yeah, they're cool. They're a badass, but that doesn't that say so much about our, again, our culture and our society that these are the kinds of people that we look to that everyone wants to be a Don Draper or a Walter White or a Tony Soprano. And it's like, and I'm not saying that within the works themselves that the creators didn't have that in mind because I'm sure on some level they're very aware that Don Draper is cool, that Tony Soprano is cool, that Walter White is cool in in their own ways. And they play that up in the work to make it interesting and also to make people sympathize with this person that they're showing on screen for a long time. But I'm also incredibly interested with what Paul Thomas Anderson does. And I mean, you can see it in Lars von Trier's work as well. And definitely Michael Haneke to some degree, but I would say he's a bit less interested in like redeeming characters and, and more like uh, wanting to really affect the audience and to really have the audience question their their own role in these things. But like I said, Hollywood's, Hollywood cinema is basically like propagandizing us to to sympathize with like bad people and then when we go and watch a, when you go and watch a film like the master, you're almost at a, at a bit of a loss because you're like, wait, how am I meant to feel? Because these are quite truthful portrayals of characters. There is a lot of room to breathe in terms of interpreting. Are they good? Are they bad? Like, what does it mean to be good? What does it mean to be bad? What does it mean to be good or bad in the society that they're living in? And how does that reflect on our society as well? And, and I think, again, like that, that is such a, a beautiful thing that I don't take for granted that we have filmmakers like that. And any time that I might feel that like, you know, I'm dipping back into the past and I'm looking through classic cinema or I'm watching things from the 70s and 80s and 90s and thinking like, why don't we have films like this anymore? You know, why don't we get actual like cinema artists who are unique in their voice and bold in the way that they want to tell their stories and definitely not interested in just giving people what they're used to having. And again, not as a provocative, um, not as a provocative practice. I mean, I would definitely say Hanukkah and Von Trier are definitely a lot more provocative and they are intentional about that. And that is a, you know, a major part of their work. But Paul Thomas Anderson, I think is very adept at creating subtleties and and I just love being able to see, ironically, a master at, at work, you know, and, and creating contemporary works of film art that just resonate in such a way that not only are the stories good, not only is the film beautiful, but that his approach and his process is kind of, in my mind, like revolutionizing things. And sure, he's, he's coming from a, a background where he has his influences and everyone has their influences, but I think to see something that feels so original, you know, in a way that David Lynch's work feels so original, Andre Tarkovsky feels so original, Lars von Trier, Michael Haneke, their work feels so original. Paul Thomas Anderson absolutely feels so original. And I think it's almost more impressive because he lives in Los Angeles. He makes films almost within the Hollywood system, but they are subtly a repudiation of that and looking towards a more a more refined and, and craftsman-like approach. And, and I think that like seeing these works and making these connections gives me a lot of, um, I guess like, I don't want to say hope because that's maybe a little bit naive, but it, it definitely gives me some like confidence and security knowing that, you know, there are some really great practitioners making really great work and it's not super inaccessible. It's not purely like a Bellata seven and a half hour film. Like these are, these are well-constructed, well-paced films that that invite you in and that anyone can watch and enjoy, in my opinion, but you will also get so much out of it as an artist. Yeah, so to continue a little bit with my notes here, um, the action in, in the films is also like incredibly realistic. And when I say action, like it's not a an action film, but to the, to the extent that there are, you know... Um, 
dramatic things happening that are very physical. Like it's all very realistic. And again, um, Paul Thomas Anderson in, with incredible restraint will show a fight or a, uh, you know, a bit of a, a bit of a shouting match or a throwdown between two people with only one take or with very minimal cutting between the conversations. And that again, just gives, gives so much power to the performance and it lets the actors actually shine. And when, I mean, when you've got amazing actors like Daniel Day Lewis in his work and, uh, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman, rest in peace and, uh, Joaquin Phoenix, you know, these, these are basically three of like the greatest actors who have lived in the last or, or worked in the last 20 to 30 years. I don't think it's, I don't think it's a coincidence that they're working with him that so often more than once he has worked with them in his films and they are just giving like amazing performances. Like it, it's, it's not a coincidence. This is someone who's very in touch with his craft, very, very confident in his vision and, and very adept at finding the right people to work with. And it's, it's not just the actors, but it's obviously the crew, the cinematography as well. Um, Jack Fisk was the production designer on the master. And I mean, I wouldn't bring him up except for that. He's a good friend of David Lynch and has worked on some of his films, but the production design is just amazing. And, and, and what's really interesting is like the setting and the casting is like a part of that, but there's this interesting scene where for some reason or other, and to give a little bit of context, if you haven't seen it, the film is basically about, you know, Joaquin Phoenix's character, Freddie, he's, he's come back from the war and he's kind of drifting through different jobs, trying to find his place in the world. And he kind of coincidentally, um, gets lumped in with a sort of L. Ron Hubbard type figure, a sort of, um, cult leader in the 1950s in America, sort of on the rise. And, it opens up like a lot of interesting opportunities to talk about the American, I guess, love with um, self-actualization with, um, with, uh, with gurus and, and cult leaders and things like that. It's a very, I think very uniquely American uh, topic, but there's a, there's a scene where there's like a party and I'm not exactly sure why, but a lot of the women in, in the scene are just completely naked. And it just felt like so real and believable because the people he casts in his films, they feel like real people. They look like interesting and different people. It, again, like it's a contrast with contemporary Hollywood filmmaking and you don't realize that there is sort of a a style of person and a style of lighting that Hollywood goes for until you see something like The Master and go, wow, this is so different and it feels realistic. And you know, there's all kinds of body shapes and these, these people without being too crude about it, like they, they have normal body proportions. They are, some are bigger, some are smaller, like their, their actual bodies seem to have signs of like wear and tear and aging. Like they're not, they're not perfectly nipped and tucked and, and, you know, everything is not this like cosmetic perfection. And I just love that so much that probably even extends a little bit to Joaquin Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman too. Like they are, you know, two of the greatest actors, like I said, in, in, in modern times, but, um, they're not sort of like conventionally attractive. Like Joaquin Phoenix looks a little bit like a crazy homeless person sometimes. And Philip Seymour Hoffman, you know, he, he just doesn't have like the look of like an amazing actor, but they just are. And I, I love that too. It adds so much in terms of like the naturalism to the work. And, you know, this coupled with the, the edit and the, the long lingering shots and, you know, focusing on characters rather than just like scenery porn. It, yeah, just, it just feels so natural and believable. Uh, I, I feel. So I think that like, you know, again, as a filmmaker, like these films and, and these filmmakers are worth studying because, like if you're interested in narrative storytelling um, or, you know, any kind of like dramaturgy on the screen, but you're, um, but you're maybe not seeing how you fit in with the sort of like hyper stylized or, you know, the sort of, again, like the homogenous sort of like Hollywood style of filmmaking. I think like you can look to these films and filmmakers to find like how to craft beautiful images in, in a more natural way. And to more than that, see a master 
or masters at work, how they show single perspective rather than confusing their film with all these different perspectives and different angles and cuts and all the time that they have a strong, you know, authorial trait that is missing from a lot of Hollywood cinema that, you know, would rather rely on those different angles and camera trickery and uh, coverage you know, my, my work is probably more similar to, I guess, Lars von Trier because I do a lot of work with um, handheld camera and that's usually just uh, out of convenience but out of an interest on it and, you know, Lars von Trier. And I think when I talk a bit more at length about him, I'll talk about his idea of obstructions and the way that he loves to put certain obstructions or different rules on his productions and they often differ from production to production. And this whole things spurred from, well, it probably spurred from his childhood, but he started a movement with some friends of his called Dogma 95, where when they made their early film work, every film that they made had to follow these like nine or 10, I think, rules that they set out. And that's worth um, looking up as well, just to see like an interesting way that restrictions can allow you to be more creative and more flexible. But um, I put a similar restriction on myself way before I'd ever even really come across Von Trier's work or had any interest to see it. And my restriction, I think I mentioned it once or twice before, was to film everything from a certain point of time onwards only in 4K 25 frames per second and to shoot everything handheld on one single lens, which is a 35 millimeter manual focus lens. So basically I was removing all of these opportunities for slow motion or gimbal work or specific types of really wide angles or really zoomed in shots. And I just had to learn how to do everything with one single lens. And, and I haven't stuck to that completely because that was, that was pretty much two years ago when I decided to do that experiment. And it, it lasted me almost a year, I think, almost a year I spent following that exact process and only allowing myself to do work with that one set of, um, you know, restrictions. And I will definitely say my work improved a lot because I was suddenly more focused on what I was doing. I was more aware of like how I was going to frame shots and what I was going to do. And I spent a lot less time obviously swapping out lenses or thinking about different angles and things like that. And you know, that's not to say those things are bad, but I guess we can see what happens with a lot of like, you know, modern cinema when you just have endless options, you just kind of like throw everything at the wall and see what sticks that's definitely the sort of, I guess you would say like sort of beginner intermediate phase of like YouTube filmmaking is like, I'm going to try all these different crazy things and see what happens. But, you know, again, like the choice of lens and the choice of shooting on 65 millimeter um, for the master, like that was a very intentional thing and intentionally choosing to frame it at, at a standard 16 by nine aspect ratio, as opposed to Um, you know, using the 65 millimeter format for its full 235 is to one aspect ratio. Like, again, like these are really interesting processes that the filmmaker and his team have gone through that they have decided to, you know, put certain restrictions on themselves so that they can focus really on what's most important. And you see that in the master, like you just see, and, and it's in there will be blood as well. And definitely punch drunk love that, his work is is able to really shine and take on this like strong again like authorial voice behind it this this strong quality to it because he's removed all those distractions and Lars von Trier's work and definitely Michael Haneke's work as well I think are great examples of that so yes I would um and and I guess like my last sort of like you know sense of like connection I think is that these are very intellectual filmmakers, you know, they, they are very aware of the things they are doing. They are very aware of the, the medium of film. They definitely read a lot. They are definitely tapped into the culture and what is happening in the culture. But ultimately they let their films, they let their films give over to the emotions in it. They don't, they don't come, they come at things from an intellectual standpoint, but they make sure that the emotion is the most important thing. And that's another, I think, incredible benefit and um, uh, a very strong thing about having a naturalist filmmaking approach and, and creating naturalist works of film is that you give your film a chance to breathe. You give your film a chance for things to 
um, for, for audiences to, to take something from it, to come at it with their own experiences. And I think that definitely Von Trier and Hanukkah, um, and I'm not too sure about Paul Thomas Anderson, but I would be surprised if he wasn't. I, I think all three of them in many ways are definitely influenced by Tarkovsky, like that idea of subjectivity that is so important to their work that lets you draw your own conclusions and that ultimately makes the work richer. I think that, you know, Tarkovsky, Tarkovsky was sort of like, maybe not the first to do it, but he was the, the first to really so strongly allow that sense of like subjectivity to become the most important character of his work. And I got a similar feeling watching The Master as I did watching Tarkovsky's Stalker. And, you know, that film has stayed with me for ages. I st- when it, still, when I think about it, I have a sort of residual sense of like a special feeling that I got when watching it. And that's what amps me up so much, I guess, watching The Master is because it is a similar kind of quality of work that left something with me that was incredibly powerful. So these these three contemporary auteurs, you know, they're masters at their own styles. And I would absolutely recommend, again, watching their films, studying them. They're, they're, they're writer-directors that have strong visions. They have an eye towards, you know, every part of the process. And, and, and seeing their work, um, all of them, it, it is so invigorating, like I said, as it, it shows me, it reminds me, I guess, like what makes cinema so magical when you have a director that is so clued into cinematography, production design, writing, the music, the editing, you know, all of these things that make cinema so special that allow it to stand out, that that are unique to it as opposed to any other art forms. As, uh, as Andre Zulowski uh, once said, cinema is a bastard. You know, it is, it is a kind of a a thrown together jumbling of all these different things, but when they come together in a, in the perfect way and, and, and acting as well, you know, um, of course we cannot forget that when, when they come together in that sort of like perfect way. Yeah. It just, it just leaves you with a special feeling. And I guess I can't even say more than that because how can you really, you know, articulate the way things make you feel often as, as I've spoken about before, like language, language escapes us and and some people are incredibly good at 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 describing these things and these feelings and and those are the artists as well and that's that's where i am that i i am way better at maybe um describing this through a work of art as opposed to actually speaking about it but hey i like to have a stab at it anyway and i think you know it can be worthwhile to point out things that maybe other artists and filmmakers at different at different points in their uh, in their process, in their journey might, might not necessarily see, or if I can, you know, help people sort of, um, see things in a different way or, or to approach a work of art that they're not sure about. Because I mean, like the biggest thing for me was, um, or one of the biggest things for me over the last like four or five years has been like this sense that like, okay, I want to create something. I need to create something. I'm creating all of these commercials. I'm you know, doing all this work for other people, but I need to do something for me that is coming from inside that is emotional, that reflects how I'm feeling, but having no idea what that could look like because I have these commercial filmmaking skills. I know how to make a commercial, but just sort of knowing intuitively that like, okay, that's well and good for that. That's all well and good for that type of work, but this is a different beast. It needs to be something else. And I didn't know where to where to start, I guess. And I guess I was very lucky that a mentor of mine recommended you should watch the film Blue Velvet by David Lynch. And admittedly, it took me a few years to, to get there. But in in that process of sort of learning more about film and and actually thinking like, okay, I should probably be watching more films and, and you know, experiencing more actual art as opposed to online content all the time. I learned a lot more about different types of films and that took me in different directions and found different artists and, you know, people like Lars von Trier, Paul Thomas Anderson, Michael Haneke, like these names, David Lynch, these, Andre Tarkovsky, like these names I had heard many, many times and never sort of given a thought to it. And, you know, how often are you sitting there and you're thinking like, oh, I'm bored or I have some free time. I really want to watch something. I want to watch a movie and you just go on Netflix or you just go on whatever and there's nothing 
on there that interests you. There's nothing good on there. And it's because they are not being recommended to you. They are not being situated in your view through whatever algorithmic me, uh, means that are there. Um, you actually have to go out of your way to, to, to find them a little bit. And often they are there. Like there are so many amazing works of film that are on mainstream streaming platforms. Like I've watched The Master on Stan. I've watched nearly all of David Lynch's work on Stan. If you're in Australia, you can get that. You know, Tarantino's films are on are on Netflix. The Apocalypse Now, I think, is on Netflix. Like so many of these works are on there. It's just a it's just a case of like knowing what they are and what to look for and what to actually watch. And you wouldn't think about it because they're not the shiny new attractive content that needs, you know, the marketing. They're not the Stan originals that actually might make some money for the platform or, or however else that it works. I'm I'm not exactly sure too too much of the ins and outs of like these streaming platforms but the work is there and I think if I can help people find these things and that can help them in their journey to like learning how 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 what kind of different approaches you can take to making films what kind of different approaches you can take to making art then I think this project will have been worth it and at least for my own sanity I guess like working out these ideas helps me and if it helps you, I think that's a great thing as well. So, you know, you can always um, get in touch with me via the, the contact form on my website. I guess I'm sort of wrapping up this episode here. But, you know, even if it is something as simple as like, where should I start with, you know, watching better films? And yeah, it can be hard, especially if you're so used to just being tuned into that like content mill, you know, of just like, logging on to YouTube, Instagram, whatever, watching the latest sort of, um, I don't want to shit too much on certain creators, but I was going to say sort of like half-assed, lazy um, content, but I mean, that would include me as well. So I won't um, shit on myself too much, but uh, you know, again, it's like, it's not the same thing. It's not something like The Master, which is obviously a I mean, just watching it is obviously a, an impeccable work of craft. It is a very um, well thought out, planned, designed, shot and, and created work of art that is, like I said, not just intellectually designed, but is emotionally very powerful. And, you know, if you just want to get in contact to find out some recommendations of where you can start doing some research, I'm very open to that. Or you can you know, share any thoughts you have with me or any, any questions you might have, things you might particularly want me to talk about on the show. Maybe I'll speak about them, maybe I won't. But regardless, if you reach out to me, my, I guess like my intention is to respond to you and probably not turn it into more content, but maybe that might happen. But I would rather just talk with whoever's reaching out to me about whatever they're working on. So yeah, feel free to reach out and, and that will be... Um, that would be lovely. And, and just sort of to wrap up here, um, I did have one more point and I was thinking about maybe making an episode about this, but maybe it's not, maybe it's not an episode. Maybe it's, um, just a, a thought, just a throwaway thought. But I mentioned Tarkovsky, um, in this episode and sort of like, I think his influence and his impact and, and how that has, you know, flowed on to the work of, of, of these more naturalist filmmakers. Um, and I also just want to say just quickly that Lars von Trier's work also does have a fair amount of surrealism blended with the naturalism, and that's what makes it um, so special to me, I think, as well. But, and, but that, again, is like coming from, you know, Tarkovsky's idea of like memory and, and dreams and, and subjectivity and like what a you know, what do these things mean? And like, do we ever really, are memories like something that stay the same or do they change over time? And like, what does that mean? Is, is, is a film a dream? Is a film a memory, you know? And I think like that's another very strong thing about his work. And then that really fits in with the theme of subjectivity. But yeah, just as like a, um, a final thought, I keep having this thought recently that like, if Tarkovsky were alive today, what would his work look like? You know, what, what would he be making? Would he be exploring this new realm of digital filmmaking? I mean, at this point, he would be probably 90 to 100 years old. So uh, I, I feel like even if he didn't die in his 50s of lung cancer, you know, his, his career might be 
a little bit behind him at this point. But in saying that, you know, I think Martin Scorsese's in his 80s and he's he's still cracking on. He's still got, you know, he's still got ideas within him, which is pretty special. But, you know, thinking about that, I, I didn't really have an answer. But as I was sort of writing some notes for this episode, I think I realized that, like, Tarkovsky does continue to live on. He he lives on in the spirit of these three filmmakers. In 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 Lars von Trier and Michael Haneke and Paul Thomas Anderson, like he his his like way of seeing things, his like, I guess, um, all encompassing need to express like his ideas on like how subjectivity plays a role in not just in cinema and art, but in the world. I think live on incredibly strongly in his work. And I think I would hope that he would be proud to see their work and to think that like, you know, well in different ways they are definitely affecting like commercial markets and, and, and being a part of commercial markets in a way that he never was with his work, especially just because of, you know, doing his work for the most of his life in the Soviet union um, I think he would be very proud and impressed and, and I'm speaking not knowing him. I'm just kind of like, again, taking my own subjectivity on it, but I can see the link there. I can see the connection. I can see, you know, if we're going to have a commercialized form of filmmaking, like these are the guys that I put my faith in. And unfortunately they're getting a bit older now. I mean, Paul Thomas Anderson's only 50, but Lars von Trier is in his 60s and, and sort of struggling with some health issues and I hope he, you know, gets a lot better. But I think Haneke as well as like in his, his 70s, he didn't make his first film until he was 47 or 48 or something like that, you know. Um, he might be in his 60s, I'm not sure. But either way, like I think, yeah, like I said, his spirit lives on in them and it's like you can you can see it like I I've been hyper aware lately of how editing like affects me and affects different people. And especially like, as I've taken a large break from online social media content, and then recently I've been interacting with it a bit more, watching a bit more sort of YouTube content. And so much of it is just like edited so quickly and so over top to the, over the top to the point that it just like, I don't know it, the speed of it and like the action, it just like sort of manipulates you into a certain narrative because you don't ever have a, a, a moment to sort of think about it your own way. And I think that's what's in a, in a kind of like meta way, like so beautiful to me about a podcast that is purely in an audio format is that there are no other distractions. There are no multiple camera angles. There are no, you know, visual elements to it. It's just my voice and you, the listener. And you can take from it whatever you need to take from it. And I think that, you know, this, the strong sense of like time and rhythm and awareness of like what a cut actually means in, in, in editing and, and what that like, you know, what affects, what effect that has on, on your story. Like that's what makes these filmmakers work so strong that their actual, the actual cinematic language of their films perfectly marries their themes and their subjects and what is happening in the films. That's really hard to do. Like I, I hadn't been aware of it again until I'd seen these films and sort of reflected on it. But like, that is a really hard thing to do to make your, not just your movie look good or to be engaging or entertaining, but to actually have every aspect of, of the cinematography, the editing, the, again, the production design, the lighting, like, to have all of those things perfectly align with what your film is saying and to perfectly present that in a way that feels just right, that is so hard to do. And that really shows their expertise. And I think, you know, ultimately that, that is what Tarkovsky's legacy is, is, is a sense of like deeply understanding everything to do with time and rhythm and cutting and how that affects your story and how, how to actually design things. And I think there is a lot more in common there than I had first realized. And I think going back and, you know, watching any of Tarkovsky's films, I think I will see a strong link between their work and these modern filmmakers. And to me that, that is just, yeah, it, it's very special and it gives me a sense of of hope and I guess like purpose to feel like, you know, my work as I'm working on it 
can follow that um, legacy as well because I am seeing that what's most important in their work is is letting subjectivity come to the forefront, to letting people make their own conclusions, to not hitting people over the head with things. And that's ultimately what I have despised about advertising so much is like it's it's manipulating you through a sense of just like dumbing things down, infantilizing, yelling at you, whatever, whatever the hell the advertisement is doing, um, you know, using emotional music to feel a certain way. And of course, all art will manipulate you in some way. Like it is making you feel something or, or at the very least, like you are feeling something by interacting with it. But I am way more interested in the way that these filmmakers, these specific three filmmakers, as a as an extension from Andrei Tarkovsky and the way that they use naturalism in their work, I am ex- ex- explicitly interested in creating work that is more in line with that lineage of film history, with that, even though it's contemporary, even though it's happening now, even though these filmmakers are still working now, I'm way more interested in that and way more attracted to that as a, as a process, as a method of working than feeling like I need to explain absolutely everything and feeling like I need to, um, you know, compromise in some way when I feel like a scene needs to play out long, when I feel like it needs to just keep going, when I feel like you shouldn't have three different camera angles of one scene, a wide shot of two people talking and then a shot reverse shot. Maybe it does just need to be one shot of one of the people talking and when the other person talks, you stay on that person to get their reaction. That shows a lot of restraint. It shows a lot of, um, like not even just restraint, it shows it shows a lot of intention and purpose and clarity of vision in what you're doing. And that's where my work is leading me and... I hope that with whatever you're working on, that this study, I guess, this ramble, whatever you want to call it, that 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 um, exploring different different filmmakers, different artists, and and their work will help you gain some clarity of thought on your own process and how you like to do things. So, thank you very much for listening. This has been an energetic episode for me. Uh, my hamstrings are hurting at this point because I've been standing for an hour, but. Honestly, I think I've got to do this more often because not sitting down and not like hunching my back over a keyboard or like holding a holding a uh, microphone in my wrist <laughs> for uh, in my hand and, and 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 sort of like arching my wrist for over an hour at a time I think is uh yeah, just really uh it makes me feel better. That's all I'll say. So yeah, again, thank you very much for listening. Um I'll uh You'll hear from me again soon and I hope to hear from you as well. Like I said, feel free to reach out via the contact form on my website. I'd love to hear, you know, any thoughts you have, what you're up to, any things that you might want to talk to me about or, you know, if you ever want to just chat through some things maybe you're struggling with in your arts career. I mean, we're all we're all going to struggle with different things and um, I'm just maybe being a little bit more upfront with my struggles and my successes as well and I hope that you do realize that it's not all just like, you know, a highlights reel of everything that I can't always just feel super good. And, and I have things that I struggle with. And for the most part, um, yeah, I'm completely unproductive and, uh, struggled to get things done or to, to, you know, get things done to a deadline or, or, or get my ideas out there or to even like let myself engage with my ideas. And, and this project, the mirror is a, is my, um, it's my outlet for that. It is my, I guess, like my accountability to myself to say like, Hey, you've got some ideas and they're probably worth talking about. And even if they're not, you should talk through them anyway. Uh, talk to yourself about them and put them out to the world. And, and in that way, they will hopefully have some meaning for other people, but also have meaning for myself to look back and say like, okay, cool. I've had lots of ideas and there's some good stuff in here. And I can cherry pick what is the best work or what is the, what are the best ideas and bring them into my work in future. So yeah, I hope you have a great day, a great evening, week, weekend, wherever you're at when you're listening to this. Um, make sure you take it easy and I'll uh, talk to you again very soon. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Mirror. 
The Mirror seeks to provoke questions around the way we create and experience art, and it's my sincere hope that in some way it helps you in your own creative practice, and perhaps your life beyond. If this project reaches you in some way, helps you reflect or reframe, or indeed provokes any kind of feelings within you, I'd love to hear from you about it via the contact form on my website. I really appreciate your engagement with The Mirror. You can support me and the work that I do by becoming a sustaining member for as little as $40 a year by signing up at justinreed.com.au slash support. You will help me continue to create exceptional work, feel great about directly funding compelling art, and you'll also receive a bunch of great benefits, including access to exclusive films, artworks, and behind-the-scenes material on my membership platform that you can't experience anywhere else, discounts on my online store, and higher-tier subscribers even get free access to all of my premium films before anyone else. So become a sustaining member and sign up at justinreed.com.au support. You can also support the show by subscribing to my YouTube channel, and listening to full episodes of The Mirror there, complete with meditative, original visuals created just for this project. Our fantastic music is written, produced, and performed by Annalisa Vetrunio, with drums contributed by Giacomo Greco. All of these details and links are included in the episode description. And until next time, I hope you're out there creating great work on your terms. I'm Justin Reed, and you have been listening to The Mirror.